This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Kevin J. Anderson is the internationally best-selling author of over 170 novels, including the Dan Shamble Zombie P.I. series and the sci-fi epic The Saga of Seven Sons. He's also written spin-off novels for Star Wars, The X-Files, and co-authored the prequels to the Frank Herbert Dune series. But perhaps his proudest achievement results from his collaboration with legendary Rush drummer and lyricist Neil Peart. Their 2012 novel, Clockwork Angels, was written to accompany Rush's album of the same name. Across its pages, they created a fabulous world of airships and alchemy, clockwork carnivals, lost cities and ruthless pirates, all governed by an autocratic watchmaker and threatened by his nemesis, the Anarchist. It's a world that they revisited in 2015 in Clockwork Lives, which is nothing less than a steampunk Canterbury Tales. Sadly, Neil Peart passed away in 2020. But as a tribute to his great friend and the world that they created together, Kevin has completed the trilogy with Clockwork Destiny, the audiobook version of which he also narrates. Before Kevin joins us from his home in Colorado, Let's allow Neil Peart to introduce us to the world of the Clockwork Angels. In a world where I feel so small, I can't stop thinking big. The best place to start an adventure is with a quiet, perfect life, and someone who realizes that it can't possibly be enough. On the green orchard hill above a sinuous curve of the winding Pinion River, Owen Hardy leaned against the trunk of an apple tree and stared into the distance. From here he could see, or at least imagine, all of Albion. Crown City, the watchmaker's capital, was far away, impossibly distant as far as he was concerned. He doubted anyone else in the village of Barrel Arbor bothered to think about the distance, since only a few had ever made the journey to the city, and Owen was certainly not one of them. We should get going, said Lavinia, his true love and perfect match. She stood up and brushed her skirts. Don't you need to get these apples to the cider house? He would turn seventeen in a few weeks, but he was already the assistant manager of the orchard. Even so, Lavinia was usually the one to remind him of his responsibility. Still leaning against the apple tree, he fumbled out his pocket watch, flipped open the lid. It won't be long now, eleven more minutes. He looked at the silver rails that threaded the gentle river valley below. Lavinia had such an endearing pout. Do we have to watch the steamliners go by every day? Every day, like clockwork. Owen thumbed shut the pocket watch, knowing she didn't feel the same excitement as he did. Don't you find it comforting that everything is as it should be? That, at least, was a reason she would understand. Yes, thanks to our loving watchmaker. She paused a moment in reverent silence, 
and Owen thought of the wise, dapper old man who governed the whole country from his tower in Crown City. Kevin J. Anderson, welcome to My Life in Books. And that sounds like my life as it is. It's been in books since I was like five years old. So thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad to chat with you. Before we explore the vibrant world that you created in the Clockwork Angels trilogy, could you tell us the story of how you and Neil Peart came to work together? Okay, well, since like 12 years old or so, I was a Rush fan. I I started getting into their albums with... 2112 and uh, Farewell to Kings and the great early Rush albums, which are all big stories. And I was a science fiction and fantasy fan. And so I fell into that music. I, I couldn't relate to most of the other music on the radio because it was all, all about like my girlfriend left me, but I was this skinny nerdy kid and I wasn't going to get a girlfriend anyway. So they were one of my main bands that I just kept listening to and they inspired me to write uh, stories. And I had just gotten my first job. I think I was in my early 20s and I started writing my first novel, which was a dystopian murder mystery in a science fiction future about dead bodies being brought back to life as like bargain basement androids. As I was plotting that story, Rush came out with their new album, Grace Under Pressure which is a dystopian science fiction album. And it seemed to me like every one of those songs was a chapter in my book. It was like a soundtrack for it. And so I listened to that album over and over again as I wrote Resurrection Inc. And I I wrote it, I sold it to a major publisher. And in the acknowledgments, I, I thanked Getty, Alex and Neil for their haunting album, Grace Under Pressure, which inspired the novel. And when the book came out, I got copies and I tracked down the address for Mercury Records and I signed a copy for each one of the guys and just mailed it in. And I assumed it was just vanished into the fan mail uh, warehouse or something like that. But about a year later, I got a letter back from Neil Peart and he had read the book and he loved it and invited me to keep corresponding with him. And that was in like 1989 or 1990. And we were great friends and uh, until he passed away uh, two years ago. We really hit it off. I mean, he, he was thrilled that I was a writer because Neil had great writing aspirations, as I think every Rush fan knows. Um, and of course, I was just a big Rush fanboy. I was like really thrilled to to be involved in all this stuff. And just kind of fast forward, we wrote a short story together called Drum Beats, which got published. But the big thing was that Neil was plotting their concept album, a steampunk fantasy adventure. And and he had read a bunch of my steampunk books and and really liked them. So he kept asking me questions and like, so in steampunk, do you do this and that? And he was asking me about the aesthetic and about plotting and telling me his idea for the story. And and I just, you know, I'm, I'm going head over heels because I'm helping to kind of shape this this concept album. And then after they started recording a couple of songs and Neil finished most of the lyrics and he's building out uh, the Clockwork Angels album, my wife and I had lunch with him. And Neil was so excited about Clockwork Angels that he thought it was some of their their best work ever. 
And Neil was telling us that it wasn't just going to be an album, that it was going to be a Broadway musical, and it was going to be a, a novel, and it was going to be Ice Follies. And and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like Rush fanboy, and I, I, I'm like, ooh, cool, Rush Ice Follies. I can't imagine that. And my wife was with us, and she she was paying a little bit closer attention. And, and she said, excuse me, Neil, but you're going to do a novel of this? Who's going to write the novel? And he just offhandedly goes, well, why Kevin is, of course. And then he goes on about the ice follies and everything. So, so that's how we ended up uh, working together to build the novel of Clockwork Angels, and it hit the New York Times bestseller list immediately right after it was published. And and I was able to text Neil right before he went on stage for a concert. And, and I said, not only are you an adequate drummer, you are also a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> now, you mentioned steampunk, and you were one of the authors who pioneered the steampunk genre. And it's often described as the future as it ought to have been. And there is an imperfect utopia in the world of the Clockwork Angels. Seemingly, the watchmaker, the man in charge, is a benign force who has brought stability to a previously troubled world. But it also stifles creativity and freedom of thought and action. C can you take us further into that world? Well, the watchmaker, I mean, he's, he's God or big brother or whatever metaphor that you want to use, but this is a guy that, that wants a perfect world. He wants the trains to run on time. He wants everybody to have a job. And, and the phrase is, um, everything has its place and every place has its thing. And everybody's happy and, and they're married and they have their job and and there's an infinite energy source and and it's utopia. But the problem is, if you don't really fit into the spot where you've been planned to fit, then it becomes oppressive. And the entire conflict, of course, is somebody who doesn't want the perfect world. He's the anarchist. He wants to mess everything up. And in most dystopia novels, the anarchist would be the hero. He's the person bringing down the repressive dystopian order. But in the clockwork books, the anarchist is as bad, if not worse, as the watchmaker. Because Look, Neil was very specific when we were plotting this. He said he didn't want this to be a dark and gritty and ugly dystopia. This is a world where it pretty much works well. That if you do fit into that round hole and with a round peg, it's a great place to live. And our hero, Owen Hardy, is just, he wants to explore and do and see things that doesn't necessarily fit the plan. But the anarchist is what we call a freedom extremist. He wants no rules for anybody. He wants nothing to work. And, you know, not everybody wants that. I, I kind of like it when my plane takes off when it's supposed to take off rather than chaos reigning in the airports. And and it, it was this conflict between this perfect order guy, the watchmaker, and perfect chaos guy, the anarchist, and our hero, Owen Hardy, is this naive young man who's kind of caught between the two of them, who wants a little bit of both, but each one of those, I guess you call them both the big villains, they want to tear him 
one direction or the other. And um, I, I guess I'm making it sound boring and philosophical, but there's lots of explosions and airships and alchemy and, <laughs> and lost cities and, and all kinds of stuff like that. So really, I feel it's a different kind of dystopia because if I have if I'm stuck in a dystopia, I would sure rather be in the clockwork world of Albion than in like Orwell's world or something like that. And the clockwork angels refer to these four giant, almost like Statues of Liberty type figures in the middle of Crown City, the capital, and they dispense the watchmaker's wisdom. Or, as the anarchist suggests, they might also be symbols of oppression, trying to stop the freedom of thought. They have various mantras, including ignorance is well and truly blessed. And Owen is a naive optimist. He wants to think big and to explore his boundaries. I mean, I cheer for this guy. He he really does think the best of everybody, and he's got big dreams and he's like the epitome of the world is my oyster that that he wants to see everything and and make friends with everybody and and all of that works great until you run into somebody who doesn't really make it work and because he's out in the real world he runs into some people that change his aspect on some of those things like his uh, Guerrero this this young man that he falls in with who is based on somebody that that Neil fell in with when he was a young man in London he's kind of a nice guy and he takes someone under his wing but he corrupts him he makes him pick pockets and steal things and it's sort of a opening the eyes of an already wide-eyed optimist to make him see that he was just looking through rose-colored glasses Owen really kind of reflects the ideal person that I have in my heart and that Neil had in his heart, that if only we could really all be like that, then the world would be pretty great. But the world doesn't let us be like that because there are bad guys, there are anarchists, there are pickpockets, there are thieves, there are surly people. I mean, Owen's the eternal optimist, even after the world just stomps on him over and over again with being shipwrecked and pirates attacking and and him being robbed and living on the streets and but he still manages to hold on to that optimism even through all these adventures and you know Neil Peart narrated the audio of Clockwork Angels and he was writing me emails like each day when he would be in the studio and he wrote, wrote me one day and said boy, we sure put that poor young man through hell. <laughs> and, you know, that's our job as writers to torture our characters, you know. As you say, it is great fun and packed with airships and a carnival that Owen joins. And there are three carnival clowns who provide a lot of entertainment and might just be based on a certain band. Well, you, you might find them a little bit familiar with some pratfalls and things. And, and of course, the, the clowns are named with the nicknames that Neil, Alex, and Getty had for each other. And, and throughout, not just Clockwork Angels, but Clockwork Lives and Clockwork Destiny, if you are a Rush fan, it is fully seeded with Easter eggs of of countless Rush lyrics being slipped in here and there, and not in such a way that if you are not a big Rush fan, you just read right over it because it reads like 
prose. But all of these Rush lyrics have been steeped in my mind since since forever. I mean, I listen to the albums over and over and over again. And in fact, Neil once told me he thought I knew the lyrics better than he did. And there is such a wide range that you can find one for every occasion. And I just felt that that made the prose more magical because it, it made Rush more and more a part of it. But don't worry, there are still plenty of airships and pirates and and tragedies and, and romance. Let's not forget Francesca, the most beautiful woman that he falls in love with, a tightrope walker who's got angel wings strapped to her back so she can kind of glide down when she jumps off of the high wire. And there is so much in this book that is kind of based on me and my personality and, and Neil and his, because we had an awful lot in common. And Clockwork Angels is just the most personal book when I wrote it. And then I thought Clockwork Lives was the best novel I had ever done out of, out of the 175 that I've written, that that was my personal Mount Everest, that I, I did everything I wanted to do. Uh, and then Clockwork Destiny, which I wrote after Neil passed away. And I, I'm still a little bit too close to that one, but I, I think it may be even better. I, I, I can hardly read it sometimes because it's so so personal and powerful to me, but um, we'll see. Time will tell. I mean, the, the readers seem to think that it's a grand, grand finale. You mentioned Clockwork Lives, and in it you revisit a lot of the characters who we have encountered in Clockwork Angels, and its strapline is some lives can be summed up in a line and others are epics. And that's a central theme. It is all about taking control of one's own life story. And with the protagonist of that book, Marinda Peake, she, like Owen, is emerging from a very controlled and rather boring life. But in her case, she is given a quest to get her out of that torpor. Can you introduce us to her, please? Well, Marinda Peake is like the opposite of Owen. Owen wants to see the world. He wants to do everything because his quiet, perfect life is boring. But Marinda Peake is the opposite in that she is the perfect person in this world. She loves exactly the place where she is. She never has aspirations to do anything. And then circumstances force her out of that. And she has to go and have a, a book full of adventures until she can get her inheritance back. And I guess I'll, I'll lay a little bit of background that I've done a lot in my life. I mean, I, I my bucket list is so long and I keep trussing things off and adding more things to it. And just every one of these experiences adds to my life. And, and Neil was the same way, that he wanted to see everything and do everything. And there are other people who just, like, they never leave their backyard. And they, they don't take a day to go and do something like that. And that's that's a through line in Clockwork Lives, where Marinda Peake is trying to collect the stories of all these people that that she meets. And she just goes to all of her local townspeople and their life story is like a sentence long or two sentences long. 
And why don't you do an epic with your life? Why don't you do something with your life and and make a difference and help somebody or or just enrich yourself and see something or or learn something or or go somewhere? And I just had this impatience with people that just sit on their butts and they don't live their lives. They're just existing. And it was very passionate when I was writing this because I felt so strongly about it. And, and it, its origin was that we, we'd finished Clockwork Angels and we loved that world so very much. And we kind of had ideas for other short stories based on some of the characters. But I didn't really want just a collection of short stories. That, that's kind of mundane. And we thought of this beautiful interwoven way of telling these short stories as Marinda Peake collects them so that she can get her inheritance. And of course, throughout those adventures, she learns that just a quiet, perfect life sitting at home is not enough. And I really poured everything into it. And when I sent the draft to Neil and he was working on it, I the letter that I, I treasure forever, he wrote back, he said, KJ, this is surely your finest work. And, you know, what more can you ask for? I mean, that was just perfect. It is a wonderful steampunk Canterbury Tales in which we discover the backstories of many of the characters we first met in Clockwork Angels, including the mechanical fortune teller and also the Picasso's tale. And that actually provided the jumping off point for Clockwork Destiny, which we will come on to discuss after the break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Kevin J. Anderson about the Clockwork Angels trilogy that he wrote with Rush drummer and lyricist Neil Peart. Before the break, Kevin, we were talking briefly about the Percussor's Tale, which was to form the starting-off point for the final book in the trilogy, Clockwork Destiny. Can you give us a bit more background? Right, so in Clockwork Lives, one of the more fascinating stories was a guy who had invented a steampunk clockwork drummer, a percussor, uh, because he, the human himself, couldn't keep perfect time. But this this mechanical percussor could keep perfect time and perfect rhythm. And in the end of that story, this the steampunk percussor plays the masterpiece. I mean, this most incredible symphony that's got all kinds of instruments connected and plays this entire epic story and because Neil's the drummer and I don't know anything about drumming Neil wrote that entire section of the story so they performed this incredible symphony for the watchmaker and the symphony evokes all these parts of Albion and not just that but but the lands across the sea but but also in the great white north the uh, the arctic and the northern lights and Neil was so enthralled with that after we had written and published the story that he said that would make a great adventure of its own that we should go up and explore the the great white north the uh, the arctic lands and the the shimmering northern lights and 
tying everything together, I thought, well, the shimmering northern lights, what if that's the source of the quintessence, which is a magical substance that we refer to in the first two books a bunch of times. And then I thought, well, what if we take old Owen on one last adventure with his grandson up to the Arctic? And what if the watchmaker is dying and he needs the source of the quintessence? So that's why Owen goes up to the Great White North. And, and Neil and I were brainstorming this and building it up. And then I, I had a brilliant idea because it's Rush songs and we're working with it. And I said, if we're going up to the Great White North, of course, they're going to have to meet Bitor and the Snow Dog somewhere. And he loved that. So any Rush fan will know that big connection. And, and so the Snow Dogs and Prince Bitor and, and the source of the quintessence and the sentient glaciers and the northern lights and all of that just became just the perfect background for this story. And and it's also a more personal story because now it's been 10 years since we wrote Clockwork Angels. And I'm older and I've seen a whole lot more things. And and I have three grandsons. And, you know, you, you want to pass on your sense of wonder to the next generation. And, and all of this just tied together. And I guess I should come back to the percussor story because it was sadly prophetic in that the inventor who builds the percussor, the reason he builds the percussor is because he used to be this great drummer and great, great musician, but he gets a, like a wasting disease, a nerve disease that he can no longer keep perfect rhythm. His hands are shaking and his health is failing, getting worse and worse. And that's why he has to build this artificial drummer. And we wrote all that before knowing that Neil uh, had terminal brain cancer and he started suffering and, and losing that kind of ability too. So now when I read the percussor story, it, it's very hard to get through because that it we were just making it up when we wrote that story. And, and so uh, I guess to, to finish up the other thing that... Clockwork Destiny, we had plotted this this really cool idea, but the Clockwork books, they've never been done under deadlines. These were always special personal projects for us. And um, like I said, I've published 170 some books and I've written uh, Dune novels and Star Wars novels and my own um, Dan Shamble zombie PI series and my Saga of Seven Sons. And I'm I'm writing all these things and and it just takes a while to get the energy and focus to do a clockwork book. So there was no real hurry for any of this. And we, um, we had plotted clockwork destiny and I had a bunch of notes and, and then Neil went off on the R40 tour with their 40th anniversary tour. And then he had just retired. And, uh, very shortly after he retired, which he, he really was looking forward to the retirement so he could spend time, uh, with his family and so he could pursue his other things. And and it was just like an anarchist kick in the crotch that he discovered he had terminal brain cancer not long after he retired. And so we, um, every time I would meet Neil, I mean, we would go out for lunch and stuff and we would talk about things. But, you know, plotting Clockwork Destiny wasn't high on the list. We were spending time together and we brainstormed a little bit more and he, he very clearly told me, he said, you're going to have to finish this after I'm gone because he knew he wouldn't be with us long enough for me to finish writing it and for it to come out. So 
So that was a very, very hard thing for me to do. Uh, after Neil passed away in 2020, it, it really affected me. And this was on the on the heels of a year where um, my son died, my dad died, and then Neil died. And it was just not a great year. Um, and I had all these notes for Clockwork Destiny, and I just put them away. I couldn't, I couldn't look at them. I couldn't do anything. And it wasn't until the year anniversary, a year after he had died, and then I got out the notes again, and I looked at them, and I, I just thought this was such a terrific story, and it needed to be done. And in the best of all possible worlds, Neil and I would have written it. And so I, I wrote to Neil's wife, and I just said, look, we've got these notes, and, and we were going to do this. What do you want me to do? Do you, do you want me to finish it on my own, or should we just shelve it? And she gave me her full enthusiastic support. She said, you need to write it. And so I started work on it. I went back and I buried myself into the clockwork world. And the way I reread the books is Neil read the audiobook of Clockwork Angels. And so I spent eight or nine hours just listening to Neil's voice reading the book we've written. And then I did the audio of Clockwork Lives to freshen up on that one. And then I was I was off to the races. I once I had it in my head, this clockwork destiny just poured out of me, and and I just love how it turned out. I won't kid you. There were times proofreading it, I was just tears pouring down my face. And then I read the audiobook of it. I went into the studio and I spent however many hours just reading Clockwork Destiny, and and that was pretty rough. We had to take some breaks at a few times and. Uh, but because Neil read the first one, I felt it totally appropriate that I should read the last one. And and I I just I can't express how proud and how pleased I am with uh, with how they turned out. In many ways, I felt that your reading Clockwork Destiny was a way of you reconnecting with your lost friend, and that he did come through very powerfully in in your narration of the book. Well, thank you, because I I have no way of objectively getting that. But one one special thing in the audiobook, um, there's there's a special afterward that I wrote that that is only on the audiobook, because I did go back. Uh, to my letters, and I found the letters that Neil had written me while he was narrating Clockwork Angels, and and I wrote a little introduction around them. But I I read those letters from Neil uh, in the Clockwork Destiny audiobook. So, um, and my engineers just go like, I had tears in my eyes when I'm recording this, and um, so. Um, but it's a fun book. I mean, don't, I don't want everybody to think that it, it's a... Um, uh... but it's very, very, it's very, very fun indeed. And and one of the things that comes through from your rereading of those emails that Neil sent you is the glee he took in reading the anarchist part. The baddies do have the best parts, don't oh, they? He, he just... Because he, he would do the voices and he would get into the voices and he just, oh, I love doing the, the anarchist voice. I love getting into this character... And, and you know it, it's it's innate in our human nature, I think, that we just like to mess things up. And and uh, Neil was very happy with with uh, doing those. And I and I've recorded. In fact, I've been in the studio this week. I'm. Um, I hope we have a little time to talk about this. So I, one of my other favorite series, and in, in a totally different genre, is my Dan Shamble Zombie PI series. 
And it, it's it's like the Adams family meets the Rockford Files. It, it's just full on cornball, stupid humor, uh, sarcastic. So I've been in the studio recording all of the audiobooks that Dan Chamble, all eight of them. And I've done uh, two of the books entirely, and I'm working on the third one right now. Uh, and I guess people don't understand how much work it is to record an audiobook. I mean, if you're listening to a nine-hour audiobook, doesn't mean that somebody sat down and nine hours later the book was done. It is day after day after day in the studio and re-recording and your voice goes goes after a couple of hours and, and then you start coughing. So you have to re-record the sentences and uh, and you know, all the characters and all the voices. And, and so I'm in like book three now being reintroduced to a character who is in book one. And now I'm thinking, what voice did I use for that character? I've got to get it at least close. Um, but Neil recorded the entire novel of Clockwork Angels in four days, I think, which is a phenomenal marathon. And he did it that fast because he only had three or four days. They were off uh, to go on their R40 tour, and he didn't have any more than those days. So Neil Peart sat down and he recorded those audios. And it, it's just wonderful. I, like I said, I re-listened to it and hearing his voice and, and just how he got into those characters was was just a joy to listen to. I, I wonder, though, I have heard that you write by taking a dictaphone and MP3 recorder into the mountains with you in Colorado and you speak the lines of the book. And I was wondering if that is why they lend themselves so brilliantly to being narrated as audiobooks. They are spoken word. Uh, yes, I've, for many years now, I've done all my writing by, by dictating into my digital recorder. And I love hiking. I love mountain climbing. I live in a, a beautiful state with more trails than I can ever walk. And I have my notes and I, I know what my story is going to be, what my chapter or chapters are going to be. And I'll just go out and walk the trail. And, and instead of typing the sentences that are in my head, I'll speak the sentences that are in my head. And I like to hike like long trails where there aren't other people. And I can just sort of get into this zone, into my own world, and just tell the story that's in my head. And so that that is conducive to audiobooks. And I've had some of my other audiobook narrators tell me that my books are so easy for them to narrate because I don't write sentences that have like seven words that start with the letter S all in a row. Because when you're typing, you don't notice that. But when you're speaking, if it's a sentence that won't come out of your mouth, well, then I don't write it because I'm not speaking that way. And so the audiobook narrator doesn't get all tripped up on clumsy alliteration that's unintentional or, or unpronounceable words and sentence structure that's just way too complicated. So uh, that's also one of the reasons why it was so important for me to narrate the Dan Shamble books myself, because this is a first-person character. It's, I mean, it's not me, but it's kind of like me. And there's so much sarcasm and so much deadpan jokes and dry humor that the previous narrator's they would read the words, but they just plain didn't get the jokes. And, and I'm listening to my own audiobooks going, 
Wait, you you just walked right past that punchline and you didn't. Uh. So it was very, very frustrating for me to listen to these that that they're supposed to be funny. But, you know, when somebody tells a joke and doesn't do it well, then it falls flat. And so I after recording Clockwork Destiny, I made up my mind that I was going to go through. I've, I've got my recording studio nearby. I mean, it's not mine. It's it's what I use. And an engineer who did the Clockwork Destiny book and. And we're just working our way through them. And so now I've got something else to do during my day because I had I had nothing else to do myself <laughs> busy with. Well, you are incredibly busy. Your output is amazing. And um, what I love about the Clockwork Angels trilogy is that you also take the time to record... Uh, an afterword, especially for the audiobook, which gives us greater insight into the process of writing the book, into the story behind the story. And I think I'm right in saying that I learnt from there that your narration of The Wrecker's Tale in Clockwork Lives was your first foray into being an audiobook narrator. Is that correct? Um, I, I think I might have done a short story for something earlier, but but um, Clockwork Lives, because it's a bunch of different stories for, about different characters, for the audiobook, we got different audiobook narrators to do the different characters and different stories. And... I figured if if that was going to happen, then I wanted to do one of them. And uh, as we said before, how Neil loved to speak the anarchist because the the bad guys always get the good stuff. Well, there's not much more of a bad guy in Clockwork Lives than the Wreckers. (laughs) And I thought, I want to be the Wreckers tale. And this is, it's such a dark... I mean, he doesn't know he's the bad guy. He's just, everything just goes wrong and gets darker and he gets more abused and pushed into a corner and 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 he learns how to hurt people and he learns to think only of himself and and through all sorts of violence and shipwrecks and things and and I just wanted to narrate that one and when I raised the possibility to uh, Brilliance Audio they said, sure, if you want to do one. And and so I recorded that one and, and I kind of liked it. But again, as I said before, it's really a time-consuming process. So I'm only going to do this for particularly special books to me that I um, I just finished and published a, a giant epic fantasy trilogy called Spine of the Dragon. And each one of those is like six or 700 pages long with all sorts of fantasy names and characters. It, it, it should make your listeners take hope because there are some fantasy authors that do finish their epic trilogies. And I <laughs> but the thought of narrating that would just make me shiver because the, those are enormous books. And I, I mean, the audio is probably 20 hours long or something like that. I, I just can't imagine devoting that much time to recording them. So we'll leave those books to the professionals, but the clockwork destiny book that had to be me and the Dan Shamble books, those have to be me. So now I know how to do it. One of the other things I associate with your books and especially the Clockwork Angels trilogy is they are very rich in literary heritage as well. Owen, by your own admission, actually, bears quite a lot of resemblance to Voltaire's Candide, and and you name-check 
uh, Commodore Pangloss in the book. And the Wreckers, who we mentioned earlier, bear quite a lot of indebtedness to the books of Daphne du Maurier. And, and the anarchist had us thinking of Joseph Conrad uh, and his secret agent. You love pulling in resources from all over the place, don't you? Well, let, let's make that you plural, because Neil was also a huge reader. And, and in fact, when we started talking about uh, Clockwork Angels, uh, he suggested that uh, Candide, and I, I thought, well, man, I haven't read that since high school. And Fortunately, that's a very short book. So I went back and reread it and I thought, well, this is this is a fun story. We can we can pull that as sort of our basic framework for the story, but it still has to be our story. So he added all kinds of other things in there. And and um, the Wreckers, not just the Du Maurier stuff, but uh, I guess Neil had been on the on the mm. coast of England somewhere where they I mean, that's not a, a fictional thing. It really happened. They really did. And so he was fascinated by that, and 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 I just like to break things. So the anarchist was very uh, enjoyable for me. So um, I guess I want to tell a bit more of the the background story. So after Neil had asked me to write the novel, and we started emailing and brainstorming how the because he had he had the songs, which are kind of like snapshots of different parts of the story, but. Neil had not written anything at at such a length or with such a complicated framework, and I started asking him, "Well, which well which order does this come in, and, and how does the romance work from here to there?" And 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 these were questions he hadn't thought about. So we we kind of put it together, and I, um, you know, he had his genius, but he really respects my world world building abilities and and my my plotting superpowers and all that. So we. We went on it, and Rush was playing in this beautiful, uh, famous Colorado amphitheater called Red Rocks. Um, and you've probably seen photos of it. It's this spectacular, beautiful outdoor amphitheater. And Rush was playing two shows there with, uh, I think, Tuesday and Thursdays. That, so but they had a day in between to rest. Well, I didn't let Neil rest. I took him on a mountain climb on this day off. And he and I climbed a 14,000-foot mountain peak and all the while huffing and puffing up this trail and scrambling over rocks, that's where we plotted the novel Clockwork Angels, all the specific things. And and in fact, that's where I came up with the anarchist being a freedom extremist, because I just went, he's not just a bad guy. And of course, in the news, they were talking about extremists, this and that. And I went, well, this is a guy that likes freedom so much, he's gone way off the deep end and he's hurting people because he likes freedom and he thinks he's the good guy. And Neil hadn't finished all of the songs yet. And and the, there's one part of the hike that, that I was kind of telling my my miserable woes of trying to find love when I was a young man and none of it worked out right. And, and you know, sometimes even if you're stuck in this not a very good relationship after it's over, you get so lonely, you think, well, maybe it wasn't that bad after all. Maybe I should go back to this person I was never really happy with. And he talked about his own friend, uh, Matt Scannell, who's the front man for Vertical Horizon, who had said similar things that, that you know, if you're, if you're lonely and looking for love, even a bad relationship seems good in the rearview mirror. And, and, like a couple of weeks after that, Neil wrote the song Halo Effect, which is one of the songs on 
Clockwork Angels album. <laughs> and so it was it was a very productive mountain climb. Let's just put it that way. And, and the uh, certainly the I had the album playing in the background whilst I was listening to Clockwork Angels. And that and Neil's voice narrating it are a wonderful memorial to his incredible creativity and a really wonderful friendship between the two of you. And I, I also want to give thanks for our, our wonderful publisher, ECW Press. And and it, it's more than just author thanking the publisher. This is more... So when Neil asked me to write the novel, and now remember, I'm, I've got... 20 some million books in print and and dozens of bestsellers and rush of course more platinum albums than any other band in history and and they're about they're going on tour to all of North America for Clockwork Angels with sellout audiences everywhere and Neil had asked me to write the novel and I thought well this is perfect and I I contacted my agent and we pitched it to my publishers my the the Dune publishers and my X Files publishers and my Star Wars publishers and all these people that that have sold millions of books with my name on the cover and Rush has sold millions and millions of albums and nobody wanted to buy the novel they didn't want to publish it they said well how do you write a novel based on an album and do Rush fans even read it, it drove me mad I was like how can you not see that this is an incredible project. And Neil suggested his own Canadian publisher, ECW, that had published several of his books, and he was very happy with them. And they were very delighted to take the book. And so they they published it with beautiful paintings from Hugh Syme, the Rush album artist. And Clockwork Angels was the first New York Times bestseller that ECW has ever had. And, and so it was huge success for all of us. So uh, we're kind of happily and sarcastically thumbing our nose at all the other publishers that turned it down. And so when we wrote Clockwork Lives, the sequel to it, because Angels was so successful, I'm sure we could have gone to any one of those other New York publishers and said, well, you missed your chance the first time, but now you can publish this one. It it just never crossed our mind. ECW would, did such a great job. There was no other option. We went to them for Clockwork Lives and then Clockwork Destiny, and they did a, a beautiful job for it. And the Canadian artist, Steve Otis, he was the guy that I wanted to do the painting for the cover. And so I suggested him to ECW and they got in touch. And, and Steve painted this marvelous painting with the snow dog and an airship and the northern lights in the back. And and it was just so lavish and so beautiful. I, I just, I say all this because it's a whole team of people that Neil's influence just ripples out like, like waves in a pond. And it just keeps going and keeps going. And, and all of the lives he left his mark upon. And an inspiration he did in so many of my novels and stories and and the art he inspired and the other musicians he inspired and and I'm I couldn't be more proud of how the Clockwork trilogy came out. Neil thought it was just one of the greatest things he ever worked on and I think it's just one of the greatest things that I've ever done and I'm not just saying that to be 
arrogant. It just it really does feel like it's special to me. It certainly is a wonderful marriage of your and Neil's imagination and storytelling abilities. Kevin J. Anderson, thank you so much for taking us further into the world of the Clockwork Angels. And I hope that before you leave us, you will just take a bit more time to share the books of your life. I'd be delighted. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. I'm in conversation with Kevin J. Anderson, and now it's time to share the books of his life. Kevin, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Well, absolutely, and I it, it, it sort of worked backwards for most people. I saw the movie The War of the Worlds when I was like five or six years old the 1956 movie or whatever year it was. And, and that just made me want to be a writer, that movie. And so once I got my reading skills well enough in hand, I think I was like eight years old or nine years old, I got a copy of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. And I, I curled up, I, I read it, and it just it was amazed by this book. And it also really shattered me because... It wasn't like the movie. It was completely different because it was set in 1907 or something. Now I think it was 1897. And it was remarkable. And H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, both the movie and the book, really just made me want to be a writer and want to read more. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Well, and one of the occupational hazards I have is that I'm a writer and I read for my job all the time. I've written so many Dune novels with uh, Frank Herbert's son, Brian. But the novel Dune opened my mind to the possibilities of science fiction when I first read it at, I think, age 11. But I've now read Dune about 20-some times, and I can keep getting more and more out of it each time. Even though it is like work, because I'm writing Dune novels, I still can turn off that part of my mind and just fall into Frank Herbert's universe and read it and read it and read it again. And of course, you've been heavily involved with the film. Yes, I just saw it again last night. So each time, just like with the novel, each time I, I see the film, I see more details in it. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, and this is a very special book for me in, in many different ways. So I've not only do I write, I've spent a lot of my time uh, mentoring other writers and doing workshops and, and critiquing and teaching other writers. Uh, and one of my Padawans, whose name is R.R. Verdi, V-I-R-D-I, um, has published several books of, on his own, but he just got his big break. His first big fat fantasy novel is a major release from Tor Books, and that just came out, and I had read parts of it before he published it, and I thought, wow, Ronnie, this is really something special. It's it's a very detailed epic fantasy, and so I am reading that book now. I'm about halfway finished with my second read-through on it, and the novel is called The First Binding by R.R. Verdi. And, and I'm doing the audiobook on it, but that's 41 hours long. So I'm taking my time to get through that one. Well, he sounds like a possible future guest for My Life in Books. 
Kevin J. Anderson, thank you so much for taking us further into the world of the Clockwork Angels and for reminding us of just what a creative genius and clearly very lovely man Neil Peart was. Yeah, thanks for giving me a time to uh, talk about it. Thanks again to my guest, Kevin J. Anderson, and to the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode. So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or check out our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.